The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aaronsmeely, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Remember back to the first year, even the second year of the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about supporting the mental health of parents, parents juggling, trying to be homeschooling and working in challenging new ways and trying to deal with a global catastrophe with very, very, very imminent consequences, all while trying to keep it together. Now, the headlines have faded around parents and mental health, but it's not like anyone's mental health is better now, even if we want to try to pretend like things are okay. Recent Harris Poll data found that 42% of working mothers have been diagnosed with anxiety or depression. 33% say their mental health has declined since 2020. And 40% don't feel their mental health will ever return to pre-pandemic days. 72% don't feel supported at work. Being a mother, and especially if you deal with anxiety and depression, is always hard. Especially when you're worried about your work and career and long-term success about how your kids will turn out and how your career will turn out and your relationships. And that's why I really wanted to speak to today's guest. Jessica Gross is an opinion writer for The New York Times, and she wrote the book Screaming on the Inside, The Unsustainability of American Motherhood. Now, we spoke last year before her book came out. At the time, Jessica had nerves about how that release would go. And also at the time, I actually had COVID. <laughs> and so maybe the timing was perfect for both of us to dive into a conversation around parenting, mental health, and stress. Before we jump in, I have to mention something else. The Anxious Achiever is the winner of the 2023 Media Award from Mental Health America. And y'all, Ken Burns was one of the winners last year. I am so, so proud of this honor for the show and the book and the LinkedIn content, and you have helped me get here. Your support, your episode ideas, and feedback means so much, and I hope that you will bask in the glory of this award with me. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Jessica Gross. Um, so, Jess, how would you describe your relationship with anxiety for yourself? So, I would say it is lifelong. I think it has ebbs and flows. You know, there's been times where it has been completely crippling and has rendered me basically non-functional. Um, but most of the time it is well controlled and it is extremely well controlled by medication, which I am super, super grateful for. I don't know what I would have done had I lived in a time before psychiatric medication because it has been truly a godsend to me. The periods of my life as an adult where my anxiety has been the worst have been the times where I have not been on medication. So it's just an acceptance that it's something that I need. 
Yeah, no, I hear you. When did you start your journey with psychiatric medication and sort of, I guess you have to have a clinical diagnosis to get medication. So when did all that start? Yeah. So it's funny. My mom is a psychiatrist, Ah. (laughs) but it's funny because she still feels guilty because she sort of did not diagnose me as you know, she would never diagnose me personally. Like that's, you know, doctors don't do that. But I had a rough time towards the end of high school. And she thought it was just like typical teenage angst, which, you know, it was partially, but it was not until I went to college. And I really had a tough time with the transition my freshman year. And I went to health services and um, started seeing a psychologist, you know, away from I think I was 19 when I started taking anti-anxiety medication and sort of have been Me too. Yeah. I think it becomes very clear when you're away from that structure of home. And I had, you know, grew up in a hap- you know, pretty happy, supportive home. And so I think when that structure of that supportive home falls away, it can be more obvious uh, what's going on. Did you find that your mental health kind of map changed when you had kids? So it's interesting. I mean, I I had a really big revelation um, when I was pregnant with my older daughter because I had gone off antidepressants to conceive. Mm. And that turned out to be a huge mistake because when I got pregnant with my older daughter, I also had hyperemesis. So I was throwing up all the time and I was so anxious. I basically couldn't leave the house. And then I actually did an entire series for Slate where I had previously worked about prenatal depression. And I I didn't know that the relapse rate for depression and anxiety was so high for women who go off medication when they become pregnant, because pregnancy is obviously a really big hormonal change. And some studies show that the relapse great for women who go off meds to conceive is as high as 68%. So it's a very high relapse. It's very, I mean, you know, there's a lot of issue. You obviously are not doing the highest quality studies because you can't, Mm -hmm. it is unethical to ask women to go off their medication. (laughs) So, um, you know, that the data is always with a lot of caveats, but it, Needless to say, the relapse rate is quite high if you go off antidepressants to conceive. And that's, you know, everyone needs to make these decisions in consultation with their doctors about what is best for them. I wish that I had not gone off to conceive just because it was so awful for me in so many ways. And I went back on when when I was 10 weeks pregnant with my older daughter. When I, you know, went to conceive, my second child did not go off medication because the effects were so dramatic. So... I think it changed my relationship to anxiety in that I think I didn't want to accept myself as someone who had mental health struggles. Does Mm. that make sense? Yeah. And having kids made me be like, oh, no, this is a health issue that you absolutely need to keep under control because your kids come first. And if you are as much of a wreck as you were during your first pregnancy, you cannot be the kind of mother that you need and want to be. So it was very clarifying for me in terms of it being something that I needed to accept about myself as something that I needed to actively manage. And it was like shocking to me to acknowledge that I had that stigma. Again, growing up in a household with a mother who's a psychiatrist, there is obviously no stigma against, you know, getting help for mental issues, you know, 
just that stigma is so profound. It's so profound. And I think part of the nature of being an achiever is that you hope that one day you'll just, you know, kind of work yourself out of it, right? Or you'll change, you know, God, that is exactly my story too, which is I went off, went off meds and conceived my first son. I didn't do it purposely, but I was off meds conceived. And then about eight to 10 weeks in got so I had psychosis and, um, you know, I was, it was the worst depression of my life. It was the worst. And it was such a profound wake up call. And Prozac saved me. I felt literally identical story. Prozac, like God bless Prozac. That's like what (laughs) (laughs) it is like literally the same. It was like the smallest dose possible. And it was like night and day. I still was throwing up all the time. So it wasn't like I felt great, but it was like, I felt like I could get through it um, emotionally. And motherhood is just a complex knot of guilt. I don't know if Mm -hmm. you feel this, but I find that as I get older, my mental health becomes more intertwined with how my family acts out their own mental health because my kids Mm. are quite anxious. It's just never an easy resolution, you know, but genetics are involved too, I'm sure. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny, like my younger daughter is she's obviously very young, but she seems to not have a particularly anxious personality. And my older daughter definitely does. And in some ways, and it's taken me a lot of work to get to this, I almost feel like I am a better mother for her to have not in comparison with my younger daughter, but in just in that I can help her with strategies to manage her anxiety because I understand it on a sort of fundamental level. And it doesn't mean that it's not incredibly painful to see her be perfectionistic and to see her be someone who, you know, thinks deeply and worries about, you know, all sorts of things. But I try to always think of things as like plus minus, you know, every quality that anyone has has upsides and downsides. For those of us who struggle with like really crippling anxiety, you know, it's hard to see that sometimes, well, maybe there's upsides to it, but it makes her, it's easier to see in your children than in yourself, you know, Mm -hmm. because you just love them so much. And so I see with my daughter that it also makes her just like a very conscientious person in a lot of ways. And she's really empathetic. And I do in some ways think that that is a flip side of that anxious personality is because she's always thinking about, you know, how is someone else feeling? How am I going to feel about how they feel? And so I try to frame it that way just to not always make it into something like, oh, this is a a negative thing that we have to manage, you know? Um, But yes, I mean, I I totally empathize with that. And it is so hard to see your children struggle through the things that you also struggle through. I think it is the hardest part of parenting. I absolutely think that that empathetic ability is a superpower of those of us who travel with anxiety. I've said Mm -hmm. it many times. And I was thinking about you because I love your writing so much. And I sort of even though I had never asked you until now, like, are you are you a clinically anxious person? I kind of knew that you were because you tweet about it all the time. But like, <laughs> I'm curious, first of all, you're a journalist. That's a tough profession. Y- you and I met, I think, in 2017. You edited a piece I wrote for Lenny Letter, which was a newsletter I really loved. Um, you were the editor-in-chief, I think. And now you're an opinion writer of the New York Times. I want to ask you what your relationship is with anxiety both as a journalist who I would assume has to like stay hungry as a writer who has to concentrate and turn off the ruminating voices. And as an interviewer, as someone whose job it is in your own 
particular position to sort of channel the feelings of millions of parents, which is a hard thing to do. Wow. Well, that is so kind of you. Thank you so much for the kind words about my work. And, you know, I, I will say I take what I do incredibly seriously, both in terms of honoring the people who are willing to share their stories with me. I would not be able to do my work if people were not willing to open themselves up in very vulnerable ways to me. Mm -hmm. And that is an honor and a privilege. And it actually kills me on a very basic level if I ever get facts wrong. Like, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is a good, again, it's like that plus minus of anxiety. Like, Right. And perfectionism. Right. Exactly. Like, but I think that's a necessary, a journalist should be very concerned about being factual. (laughs) So, you know, I do worry about that. I, I worry, I wonder if I would enjoy my work more if I uh, was able to do it in a world without social media. Oh God. Um, Because I spend a lot of time worrying about things that I've written being taken out of context or misinterpreted. And it's hard because I welcome critical feedback when it is in good faith. But social media is an air horn. And so you are opening yourself up not to just like good faith feedback. Like just this week, I had really good faith feedback about how I should be including the perspective of single parents more. And I was Mm. like, you're absolutely right. I am going to strive to do that more. And I was like, happy to have that feedback from someone who is not like, you suck and are horrible and, you know, much more crueler things that people say constantly. (laughs) So it's like that, again, it's like the nexus of sort of the anxiety, rumination, thoughts that keep me up at night are like, Am I going to be the focus of um, not just like a bad faith social media firestorm, but like of danger? You know, I write about very intimate topics like abortion, Mm -hmm. things people feel very, very strongly about. And there are people out there who will send you death threats, who will, you know, like really nasty stuff. So that is sort of like, where the anxiety, the bad anxiety, I would say. Well, and at the very least, right, you're asking to be judged, I suppose, every time you post a Um, piece. Yeah, that kind of bothers me. Like, as much as I'm anxious about certain things, I actually feel pretty confident in my sense of self mm-hmm. and in my own beliefs and, and the way that I try to express those beliefs. And I think I would die as an opinion writer if I didn't feel that way. Fair point. <laughs> um, so I'm less worried about people. I, I don't, I'm fine with disagreement. You don't have to agree with me. I feel anything that I have committed to writing, I have backup for. I have done reporting. I have read a lot. I really hope that the thoughts I'm putting out there are backed by evidence and also really like thought through and not in a way that is like, this is, I will never consider another viewpoint. I'm, I'm always open to other viewpoints and to changing my mind. Mm. But it means like if I'm putting a idea out there, I've really thought about it a lot and I feel confident about it. And if I don't feel confident about it and I'm still thinking it through, I'm not going to publish it yet. 
you know? So I don't really have that much anxiety or even like people will be like, oh, you said this six months ago and things changed. And how could you have said this six months ago? And I'm like, well, I was commenting on what was happening six months ago. Like (laughs) people use it as like a gotcha. (laughs) Like I'm like, yeah, it's not six months ago. This is a daily newspaper. Like this is responding to what was happening. Like, you know, in October. So again, that sort of stuff doesn't make me anxious. That doesn't make me worried. It's more like I worry about the people I talk to and honoring their stories. I worry about really violent people who can find you on social media and it would have been harder to find you without it. Um, And I worry about things being taken out of context. That's, I mean, that's, really painful or people just reading a headline and accusing you of saying something that if they had read the piece you are not at all saying right i mean that's not just a worry that's just painful to encounter it's like lies basically (laughs) being told about you i mean you know as much as i can i do try to focus on just what i can control and i can't control that stuff let's talk about that because Several of your columns actually highlight what I would call how to be psychologically flexible, right? Mm. Taking the blame off yourself for decision making, accepting we can only make the decisions we can with the information we have. Is that something you're working on for yourself, both at home and work, practicing psychological flexibility and maybe trying to cut some slack? Oh my gosh, literally every day of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I find it. It's just a challenge. It's a challenge that I have every day and I'm better at it on some topics than others. Mm. And I think in some ways it's really easier. I'm not super hard on myself, I think, as a mother because I don't think that much about expectations outside of my relationships with my children and my husband. Does that make sense? Like I'm fairly immune to kind of outside pressures because I'm pretty clear on my own values and what's important to me Mm -hmm. and what's important to sort of inculcate in my children. And I am definitely only as happy as my least happy child. Like that cliche absolutely applies to me but I am good at sort of like listening to them and thinking about this closed unit of my family and how it works and trying not to think too hard about what goes on outside it. I feel like that's a skill that a lot of listeners would love to know more if you have a tip and I want to add one more question to it which is I think those of us who work at home might find it harder when we have a rougher day at work or Mm. we get feedback that's hard at work on not bringing that into that closed family unit. And I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to, how you've learned maybe to compartmentalize and stay focused on the values because that's the key, right? Yes. Okay. So for work, I am like a very extremely efficient person. And this is sort of something that I think is natural to me. Like, I don't know why. I cannot tell you where it came from. My friends in college could never, they were just like, 
why are you not pulling an all-nighter? I'm doing an all-nighter. I'm like, because I got my work done in the like, oh, <laughs> like because I planned that yep. I would work at this time. And then that is always just how I work. It's not to say I don't procrastinate, but it's almost like even the procrastination is organized. I think that's an anxiety superpower. I think that those of us who are anxious plan ahead. Like that's it's part true. of what we do. We look around corners. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I can actually tell you how my work week is now structured, Yeah, which I put a lot of thought into. And I also have to leave time most days to exercise because mm-hmm. that is my other major anxiety management. I cannot, if I do not exercise, if I do not move my body, mm-hmm. I feel so much worse. And there's no, like, there's no shortcut around it. Like, I wish there were. Like, some days I'm like, I really don't feel like exercising today. I really would prefer to just stay in, like, in in my soft pants and do nothing. But I just know that at the end of every day that I don't exercise or just even take a walk, move mm-hmm. my body in some way, that will be a night that I am ruminating and I can't fall asleep and, like, it's not worth it. So tell us about your week. Tell us about your anti-ruminating plan. Okay. I feel like I so, need this. Because you write a lot. You're very I productive. do write a lot. And this is also like not everyone has these deadlines. So these are very specific based on when my newsletter comes out. So my newsletter comes out Wednesday mornings and it comes out Saturday mornings. The Wednesday newsletter is usually much more reported and involved. I write Monday mornings. So I make sure that Sunday nights, Everything is ready to go, both for my children and for myself. So, you know, I try to get my kids to lay their clothes out every night. They don't always do it, but they definitely do it on Sunday night. (laughs) So, like, everything is set up Sunday night so that Monday morning, my husband can be the only parent involved. The second I wake up Monday morning, I just focus in on my column. I just think and write. I ignore Mm -hmm. everyone. Because I know myself and I know that I do my best and most concentrated work the two to three hours after I'm awake and I've had my coffee. Like that is when I can do just an insane amount of stuff. Hmm. And so it's like knowing that I need that first couple hours in the morning. And that is like when I will do my best writing and that kind of brain work. So that's Monday morning starting at like usually like 7 to 11. Mm -hmm. I'm writing my column. The rest of that day is spent waiting for edits, kind of thinking about what's the next column. The next column is sort of thought about Monday, Tuesday. The Saturday column yes. is thought about. Okay. Or And also the next Wednesday. So it's like I'm seeding the groundwork for the next stuff. Mm-hmm. Then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, promoting Wednesday's column, reporting, reading. Friday is another writing day. Husband takes kids to school? Yep. My older daughter walks, our school is two blocks from our house, which is amazing. So our older daughter walks to school by herself and the kindergartner is walked by my husband. And again, so it's just like knowing when I need those concentrated, no one bother me periods and protecting those. But then otherwise, like I am pretty good at multitasking. So like I have periods where I'm like, I can be answering these emails or skimming something Mm -hmm. or reading, you know fairly concentratedly um, and also like kind of either like thinking about what we're going to have for dinner or like doing all of that sort of stuff. And I will say like 
a profound privilege and benefit to my life because of the pandemic has been that I don't commute anymore. That's 80 minutes of every day that I have back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. Do you find that decision fatigue is an issue for you? It's something that also you've, you've written about. Is that, a, is that something that you're struggling with? The kind of like mental load, emotional load, and the anxiety that surrounds it? So I'm actually an unusually decisive person. My husband oh. says that I am the most decisive person that he has ever met, which like is both a compliment and an insult. Yeah, it's like, fair enough. You know, I'm a pain in the ass. Like, you know, I'm like, if I've decided something, I am un- I'm immovable. Like, I am so annoying <laughs> that way. I think that the risk calculation I am exhausted by. Because oh, there's no, because there's no, like, usually I am really good at taking in all of the information and making a choice and not overthinking and not going back to it. But with a pandemic, it's like, we just have to keep remaking these decisions, which I hate. Like, it's not like you've taken in all the relevant information and you've made the decision. It's like, well, that happens in new every three months when there's a new variant. So that is exhausting to me. Because it's yeah. like, wait, I thought I made the decision. It seems to me that we live in a time when anxiety and parenting seem inseparable. I, mm-hmm. I don't even know if you can like parse the two. I cry on Tuesdays and Fridays was one of my favorite headlines. <laughs> How society has turned its back on mothers. Why some dads won't take leave. They fear they will be punished. Is mom's somnia keeping you up at night? If this country won't listen to moms, I'm asking men to start shouting. And then, of course, my favorite one you wrote about your brain being broken. Yeah. I feel like... Our experience of parenting in the past couple decades has been so much judgment, so little support. Probably of parenting for centuries, frankly. So much judgment, so little support. I have a two-part question for you. Mm-hmm. My first question is, why are we as working parents, especially mothers, but, but fathers too, judged so much, supported so little? But then my other question is, like, do you see any silver lining in the pandemic around the judgment? Like maybe we're judging each other less. Maybe we feel we have to perform a little bit less. 
What are your thoughts on judgment and whether it's trending up or down? I do think that the United States makes it uniquely hard to be a parent. Yeah. I do think it is worse here uh, than in other places. And the reason people are so anxious and so judgmental is because there is this notion that everyone should be able to handle everything themselves. And it's a very sort of independent, every person for themselves. You're expected to be the ideal worker at work and be and behave as if you have no caretaking responsibilities. And that's just sort of expected. So I think that that's sort of why there is so much anxiety and judgment, because you feel ultimately like if things don't go right, it's your fault. Whereas, you know, really, there should be any number of sort of social supports that other countries have that we don't just basic things, healthcare, parental leave, all of these things <laughs> that are, you know, really pretty basic safety net stuff that we don't have. The silver lining of the pandemic is that from a social policy level, mm-hmm. more people are talking about issues that affect parents than I have ever seen in my, you know, 10, 15 year career. That gives me hope. In terms of like individual judgments, absolutely, I do not think it is better. I actually think it's like, I mean, just around notions of sort of COVID judgment. Mm, fair every single decision you make, if it's not the decision that I would make, I think you're crazy. Like that just happens constantly. I mean, I took a break from Instagram and Twitter and it was amazing. Like Mm. I definitely felt less anxious. Before social media, you just didn't know what most other parents were doing most of the time. You just didn't know. You knew what your, your family were doing or your friends were doing, but like you didn't have all of this context-free information, because that's what you're getting from social media, right? Like you don't know these people in real life. You don't know their circumstances. You're seeing a fairly context-free snippet of their lives and then comparing yourself to it, which is useless, completely useless comparison. (laughs) I just think there's no way that it's not making parents more anxious. And I've definitely done tons of interviews with people where they suggest that social media has made them more anxious as parents. And I guess the key is just to take a break. You know, I I am a trash monster. Like I spend so much time on the internet. I watch so much TV. So I always feel like that <laughs> advice comes from people who are like, I'm like, I just, my knee jerk response is always like, oh, you think you're better than me? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so like, yeah, if it's like, pay attention to your feelings, so much easier said than done. But like, I went off, I did not go off social media entirely. I just watched tic- like 10,000 hours of TikTok. And it did make me feel better because TikTok doesn't ha- is like, at least what I was being served is like silly and antic. And it's not didactic and, sa- and or showing like your best self. It's like showing you as like a silly mess doing a funny dance, right? So like, that was generative and made me feel good. So it's like less about like prescriptive, like only spend this much time or only do these things. It's more like, listen to yourself. What is making you feel bad about yourself? And then don't do that. You know, again, easier said than done. I will literally like be in bed after my kids are asleep and I will be staring at my phone and I'll be like, oh my God, I feel gross. Like I have just been staring at this phone (laughs) for 40 minutes. I need to stop. And I will look up and another 20 minutes will have passed and I will not have put it down. So it's like, listen, man, I, 
<laughs> physician heal thyself. But like, um, I call that psychological flexibility. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's choosing. Let's end on a hopeful note. What are you excited about in 2022? What are you What are you looking forward to personally, professionally? I do have a book coming out in the fall. Mm-hmm. I'm mostly anxious about that. Just entirely yeah. anxious. I wish they could give me the money for having written it and then no one sees it. Like that is my current <laughs> feeling about the book. Why? Why? <laughs> because like listening to everyone's feelings about like, what if they all hate it? What if like, you know, that's just, I don't want to think about it. The reception. I don't even want to hear the nice things about it because I like tend to, if people say nice things, I'm like, I don't, I can't believe them. You don't so, believe like, they're true. right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's fine. Like it will come out. Hopefully people will like it. Hopefully like, you know, it'll be fine. Um, so that I'm both looking forward to and anxious about. I am looking forward to. So we moved in with my parents for six months of the pandemic. Mm. And I don't know how we would have gotten through otherwise in terms of just like not being able to both have full-time jobs and also do remote school. So like, God bless my parents in so many ways. And we actually moved in with them again last summer because it was such a great experience and our kids loved it so much. And so we're going to do it again this summer. I am actually really looking forward to that. Like it's a perfect amount of togetherness and my kids go to camp near where they live. So I'm looking forward to the summer. I have to leave you. I I I wrote a little tiny victory because it's a piece of the parenting uh, vertical, the New York Times. I'm just going to tell it to you because it's my podcast. But um, <laughs> I I have to tell you. So I have COVID and I've been super sick. And my my daughter was testing negative at the time, although now she's positive. And last night, she knocked on my door in my bedroom. She brought me a package and she said, "Mom, you're sick, so I'm going to shut the door now. But I wanted to bring you this package. I love you. Goodbye." And then she left. And it was just, I can't, I think any working parent out there will appreciate both like her incredible boundaries and um, management of herself and the fact that she wanted me to get my package. So there's always light at the end of the tunnel. I know. I mean, I am like, like there is something my kids do every day that just makes me smile so widely and makes me so even on the worst days where someone has had like a five alarm meltdown (laughs) there is always something that they do that just makes me well up with joy and warmth inside so i really love hearing everyone else's stories about feeling the same things tiny victories yeah absolutely That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening. 